0: I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. Nox <laughs> <laughs> It's week six of Grant Nog, aka At Cult of Morbius, as run through of the Stephen Moffat era, where he's going back to find out whether he prefers the stories a second time around. And this week, he's arrived in the middle of Series 6A, as it's popularly known. And on The Curse of the Black Spot, he had this to say. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I don't think this is as bad as everyone says. It's not great, but it's not awful either. And then on The Doctor's Wife, he says, we finally get to see the story about the most important relationship in Doctor Who history. Absolutely magnificent. I adore it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Well, of the three stories of uh, series six so far. The worst he's said is it's not great, but it's not awful either. <laughs> mm. Which isn't a bad start.
1: No, that's not. That's very kind as well for the curse of the. Well, he's
2: right. right. It wasn't that bad. Oh. It wasn't that bad.
0: I liked it. <laughs> oh, oh, you've been serious. Sorry, <laughs> I
1: thought you were joking. Uh,
0: I liked it. I don't know. I don't really know what was to dislike about it. And, and let's face it, as the arbiter of good taste, I am the last word.
1: <laughs> Is that it now? I'll be finished.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we'd better come out of Knox Box. So here we go. Box, box Knox. Knox!
1: Oh, I see how you do it. It's just Box yeah. Knox. Yeah. Be yes. trying to go backwards Oh, properly. don't we
0: reverse the notes as well? No. Yes. Oh, no, we just do Box Knox instead of Knox Box. Oh, we'll nail it next time. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Lee, if you'd ever listened to any of these podcasts back, you'd have worked <laughs> no, out what we were doing by now. Um, we, Before we get on to the subject for tonight's episodes, we've got a few emails, and I think I'm going to do the first two now and save the last one till later. This is from Helena. She says, hello, blue box chaps, really enjoy the show, but I'm yet another <laughs> avid listener who isn't a huge Moffat era fan. The whole 11th Doctor story has been terribly clever, yes Simon, I understand it, mostly looks fab, and it contains the only 21st century story that is one of my favourites ever. Unlike David in Australia, it still feels to me like Doctor Who, just in an era that isn't one of my favourites, but it's not my least favourite either. Target got me through that era, DVDs and Big Finish is doing the same job now. I can be patient. Watching for 17 years paid off when the 7th woke up, and there he was, my Doctor. This era will end, things will change. Maybe lightning will strike a third time. Meanwhile, current Doctor Who isn't the greatest thing ever, just the best thing on the telly. I do wonder, though, if there's a podcast for you in this, JR, with some of your not-Moffat fan listeners. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Mm. Actually, I might be about to do that on an Australian podcast, but we'll uh, say more about that in the near future if it happens. Anyway, Helena carries on. One other topic I wondered if you might do is stories that feature child characters. It -hmm. seems to me as though episodes with children who aren't monsters get extra harshly criticised, almost as though some folks don't like being reminded it's a kid's show or something. And you know what, she sent that just before we recorded the last podcast, and we actually covered that last week, didn't we, Simon? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, not did. in not in any great depth, but we did sort of cover it. Mm. And actually, mm. that's going on the list, I think. Children in Doctor Who.
1: Yep, yeah, must do it. Good idea.
0: Yep. And also, actually, uh, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, and we'll do one tonight, but I think another one we should do is to go through the Doctor Light stories and look at how they work. Look at the different things they tried, and whether those. Okay. Stu- so I think after our birthday, we'll come back with those two children in Doctor Who and the Doctor Light episodes. Great. That that
1: accounts for the that accounts for the um, the black and white dialect one as well. Mission to the Unknown,
0: I presume. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, that's a different thing entirely, though. But yeah, yeah, that will be a prologue to the rest of the episode, I guess. Anyway, I emailed Helena back and said. Um, That I found it ironic that the seventh Doctor era was her favourite, and yet the Moffat era, not so much, because I do find those pretty similar, really. And she wrote back and said, you're dead right, JR, the eras are similar stylistically. That one episode I didn't shout out, I rate it one of my top three of all time don't get me wrong i think the eleventh doctor's era is terribly clever beautifully realised astoundingly well-written fairy tale moffat has done what he set out to do and i wouldn't have worked so and it wouldn't have worked so very well without characterisations i dislike so much they are part and parcel of fairy tales and here's a question do you think the fairy tale is over i'd love to see mr moffat write another sort of story
1: yeah, that's a very good point, isn't it? Everybody's thinking about whether he's going to change direction. I think he's mentioned that he's going to um, change the feel of the of his era. I think I don't know. Whether he's he's readying people for the next producer. Whether he's just letting people know that he's just moving on a bit from the massive arcs and the fairy tale thing. I don't know really. It's it's it'd be interesting to see what happens next. I'm looking forward to whatever happens next. To be honest.
0: Well, uh, yeah, it's. One of those things, isn't it? You don't when before he started writing his own era and his own uh, the Matt Matt Smith part of his era has been a very self-contained bit, so you can imagine him doing something else. I mean, the the stories he was writing before Blink and the Girl in the Fireplace and the Empty Child and even Silence in the Library, they all have a slight feel of that fairy tale thing he's doing. But especially the empty child, they're quite different as well, and you can imagine. I mean, he only in series eight, he's probably only going to write maybe four episodes, so you can imagine the episodes that the other writers come in and doing. Maybe he's going to give them a different kind of instruction. Mm-hmm. So we'll just have to see.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, I'll go on. We got. On. She mentioned David there from Australia. Mm-hmm. And we did get an email from him too. So I'll read that email out and then we'll get into tonight's subject.
2: Um, can I just say that um, if Helena understood the characters, she might enjoy it more. <laughs> joking! <laughs> joking!
1: <laughs> I'm glad you said joking very quickly and loud there. you really very that, naughty. Am I really that
0: patronising? Oh
1: yeah.
2: dear.
0: Yes. If you knew me personally, you'd think that was really ironic.
2: But anyway, yes. <laughs>
0: And so the email from David in Australia, he says, JR, ugh, he says, Dear JR and team, thank you for reading my email and for your thoughtful responses to it. However, I'd like to think that I'm not so much a naughty, naughty boy for disagreeing with you, but waxing in wickedness like a Hogarthian page boy. Now there's an obscure reference for you. <laughs> Pondering your comments further, it strikes me that the next series of the show is arguably the most important since the relaunch, as it needs to balance the desires of old-school fans like myself on the cusp of moving on from the show completely, whilst also continuing to appeal to the very new fans that came for David Tennant and stayed for Matt Smith. I have a lot of faith that Peter Capaldi can achieve this. You asked for what TV shows I'm watching to fill the Doctor Who gap, and whilst I don't presume others will share my taste, for dramas I recommend Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom and Netflix House of Cards while HBO's Looking shows a lot of promise, especially with Russell Tovey confirmed as a regular for the next season. Suits is also a lot of fun, and although aimed primarily at teens, the Australian science fantasy series Nowhere Boys may interest fans of that genre. Finally, for pure escapist guilty pleasure viewing, the third season of Teen Wolf has a lot to offer. <laughs> I look forward to listening to many more podcasts from you, and promise to write again when I feel I have something to say. Teen Wolf really? I <laughs> know uh, yeah but I know I've heard good things about that. <clears throat> I don't even know half those shows he mentioned. No. Although Aaron Sorkin of course, classic, The West Wing sports night. Hmm. I can't argue with any of those. <laughs> if I knew Okay, what <clears throat> sorry. I I knew what they were. Oh, <laughs> uh, what the West Wing? Yeah,
1: I've never watched any of it. Yeah. Oh, I know what it is. Christ. I, just, I just, I've never watched any of it. No, I know Christy. it's one of your favourite things, isn't it? One of your favourite series of all um, time, possibly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, unquestionably. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. say it's one of my favourite series of all time. I would just say it's one of the best television series of all time. Mm. I don't think many people would actually argue with me. To no, be honest, no,
1: probably not. Probably not. So, a shed load of fantastic series coming out. Deadwood was another really good one as well that uh, need to mention. It's a Western, for goodness sake, but it was good. Town of Mercy, if you like that, go and watch Deadwood.
0: And moving swiftly along before we get completely involved <laughs> in recommending television programmes to each other, Lee, 20 yes. seconds on Fear Her. 20 seconds.
1: Fear her. I liked fear her. Didn't like the end. It was a bit trite. Uh, The Doctor didn't need to be up at the top. lighting the flame. That should have been Rose. But generally speaking, I would protect that little episode, though it should have been a Sarah Jane. Is that good enough? Yeah, that'll do. Uh, (laughs) 20 seconds on New Earth. Oh, I love New Earth. Um, It's got a lot Mm. of faults with it. It's not the greatest story of all time, but there's a nice feeling about it. It was on an Easter day, uh, Easter weekend, and I just remember it was David Tennant's real new shot at being the Doctor, and I love the feeling of being on a New Earth with flying spaceships and apple grass. It's lovely. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay. New New Doctor. And uh, New New Mark Gatiss, 20 seconds on The Idiot's Lantern. Uh, another
1: underrated episode I think the problem was bad acting on the father's part um, that just kind of spoiled the whole thing for me and and that kind of relationship with the son we didn't really need that I think he got rid of that and kind of put a few other characters in it was pretty good I quite liked it I liked the setting I liked the idea uh, the old television sets um, yeah very good I think it would have been better to stick with Mark's original idea of um, jukeboxes and sound I think it was originally they were going to do uh, that would have been oh. interesting I think I think but uh, no, again, underrated. Um, I liked it.
0: I think you're right, actually. I seem to remember it was originally set at the end of the 50s, and mm. then they shoved it back to do the birth of television yeah. and the um, coronation, didn't they? Mm.
1: It's a clever idea, because it makes more <clears throat> sense. You can capture more, yeah.
0: more victims that way. Okay, Lee. What, what 20's- to the,
1: to, sorry, did their ears disappear or something? When the, <laughs> their, their faces got sucked off.
2: What, by the radio?
1: Oh, I was saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I know. I don't know what the what, what the enemy would have done to the person listening to the music. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> Maybe their heads would have disappeared entirely.
1: Their ears get sucked <laughs> off. <laughs> Simon.
0: <laughs> that would have been great, though, if their heads had disappeared entirely.
1: <laughs> yeah. It would have been, wouldn't it? Oh, did man. you
0: only just notice that? My yes, God. God. 20 yes. seconds on Rise of the Cybermen. Oh, um, I
1: watched this earlier on today. Oh god I can't do 20 seconds. Uh, it's a real mixed bag of stuff that I really loved and stuff that I couldn't stand. Uh Lumic the actor plays Lumic. Brilliant bloke, terrible part. Uh he played it really badly and over the top. Um Mickey was great in it. I really like Mickey and his uh, and his little cohort of people. Very touching moments with uh, the parents, Pete and um, Jackie and all that kind of business. Yeah, it was a mixture. Cybermen didn't like that design, I'm afraid. I wasn't that much of a fan of that flared Cyberman outfit. Um, And why put it on a parallel universe when you just just could have brought the Cybermen back? But I quite like parallel universes, so um, yeah, you can throw an airship at me and I'll be happy. (laughs)
0: for a full explanation of why it's set on a parallel earth you'll have to listen to last week's episode where i went into that in great depth probably too much depth and finally of the stories we covered last week 20 seconds on tooth and claw Ah, beautifully filmed. Great rapport
1: between Rose and the Doctor. I kind of miss that genuine friendship and flirtiness. Uh, the fun leads to that seriousness with the Queen pointing out how dangerous the Doctor's life. I like that. Um, uh, it's kind of who's showing off, really, isn't it? You've got CGI, you've got action, location, filming, uh s- Uh, not the saturation, the opposite, where you drain the colour of the... Desaturation. Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm sure that's not what it's called, but that's exactly what I meant. Um, It's called desaturation. Is it called desaturation? Mm. Yeah. Well, when you just take the colour out? Yeah. Is that right? Really? Oh, okay. Um, I thought the tension was paced pretty well in the first uh, half, and the second half was a bit of a scooby-doo around, wasn't it? And libraries get a mention. Hey! Um... No, it's pretty good, actually. Actually, the plot, if I remember right, with uh, Victoria being taken over or being aimed uh, and you know the, the werewolf taking over, yeah. basically, the monarchy or whatever, that was explored in a BBV audio um, with a Zygon a while back. I oh, was really? wondering whether the writer nicked that idea or whether it was just coincidence, but it was a great idea, nonetheless. Oh, I enjoyed okay. it, but it was a very, um, I don't know, 65, 70% episode. It seemed a bit empty, even with the emotion.
0: Oh, really? I Yeah, I don't know. I, I, you could be right. Look, anyway, Mixed that's, that's, yeah, those are the bottom five stories as oh. voted by us and our listeners yeah. from Series 2. David Tennant's first year in the TARDIS. And so tonight, of course, is the second part of that podcast, and tonight we'll be covering the five stories that were voted the top. And of those five stories, the one that came in fifth, got just one point more than tooth and claw so oh. those two were pretty much neck and neck right in order to uh, let you know what story it was i'm going to read a couple of comments we had about it um sean m vale said very touching ending the rest only redeemed by the cybermen and the daleks smack talking each other While Richard Hogarth said, An excellent and compelling finale to this mixed bag series. Just hearing the Daleks and Cybermen bitch at each other makes me smile, laugh and cry at the same time. So there you go. What story are we talking about now? Girl in the Fireplace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Army of Ghosts, obviously. And of course, you know, Doomsday, the second half. Now the funny thing about this is, the previous year, Russell T. Davis had finished the series with the finale that started off with the first episode that was kind of a bit of a pop at popular culture, and started off quite fun before getting darker and more exciting as the episode went on, came in with a humdinger of a cliffhanger, then went into a second episode where, rather than be all bangs and flashes, it was actually, because, you know, during season one, series one, nobody knew what to expect really, and nobody really knew what to expect with the second episode of that, it actually started off quite intense and then hit us with a number of really emotional moments that we probably weren't expecting and then in the second series with Army of Ghosts and Doomsday blow me if he doesn't do exactly the same thing again, and just as well as he did it the first time pretty much Mm, Uh, yeah, I mean instead of having a go at popular culture in the first episode instead you've got this storyline that involves this well army of ghosts and rather than you know being a pop at reality TV instead it's a bit of a pop at the sort of um, you know the kind of programs that do spirits and mediums and all that kind of stuff (laughs) you know the kind of program I mean oh leaders leaders yeah the kind of yeah most the, Haunted. Did you
1: see... Uh, no, there, not Most Haunted. The, on, ones, the Der- ones about... Derek Okora was on this, wasn't he? Did he have a little part
0: in it? Oh, yeah, I think he did. Yeah. No, not the Most Haunted, but the ones where they try and put put people in touch with their dead relatives. Yeah, I know. You know, the, yeah. the ones that kind of take the public to be slightly... Um, Gullible. <laughs> I wasn't going to use that word, but yeah. It's true. But you know what I mean? The, the first 20 minutes of Army of Ghosts is yeah. that, really, isn't
1: it? It is. It's... it's uh, uh, brilliantly titled Army of Ghosts is a great title for anything. I just love it. It's almost like uh, some kind of uh, Japanese uh, movie, isn't it? Army of mm. Ghosts. But um, the great thing about this is it, it, it echoes of one of my favourite comic strips, uh, The Flood, I think it was called, with all the very skinny Cybermen that can oh, appear yeah, yeah. from nowhere. I'm wondering whether that was, again, a direct link, uh, or whether it was lifted or borrowed. or An influence. An influence, yeah. That's probably the best way of putting it. Um it was just so well done. It was very clever. It's very interesting. Jackie was really pulled in, wasn't she? It's uh, Nana or Grandad or something was coming back to say hello. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing was great. It was quite light considering it could have been quite a dark episode, actually, if you think about what the subject matter is.
0: Well, this is what he did with the first, you know, with Bad Wolf, isn't it? He kicks off with 15 or 20 minutes of these reality TV Mm. sort of stuff poking fun at them Mm. and it's all very entertaining and light and then he kind of hits you you know right in the belly really Mm. with that moment when Rose gets shot and you just for an instant think she's dead Mm. and then he ramps it right up to the end of the episode and in Army of Ghosts he kind of does the same thing you don't get a moment quite like the moment where Rose gets shot but you do get this build up this sort of increasing dark build-up towards tension, as it were, mm-hmm. as you're getting into finding out what the ghosts are. I mean, you've got a scene fairly early with the Cyberman, uh, and you you kind of know what's going co- If you've not been spoiled by it, mm-hmm. it's quite... You
1: a, yeah, you wouldn't know, would you?
0: Well, no, you wouldn't know that it was the Cybermen if you hadn't been spoiled by it. But the thing is, you get the Cybermen reveal, the proper Cyberman reveal, that it, they are the ghosts, right at the end of the episode, like five minutes before the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And you've got the um, void ship, right? And for all the world, you're expecting the void ship. To have, in spite of the fact that the Cybermen say they don't know what's inside it, you're expecting some kind of giant Cyberman, you know, some kind of Cyber leader of some kind, mm. Cyber Emperor, or something like that. And then when it opens and it's the Daleks and you've got the Daleks versus the Cybermen, my God.
1: Yeah. Mm. I mean, I genuinely didn't know. I mean, I'm very good at avoiding spoilers anyway, but uh, that moment, that was such a great, um, great, you know, finale for that first episode. Brilliant. I, don't know, I just whooped <laughs> like a kid. When, yeah. Yes, we're going to get the Cyberman and the Daleks fighting together. Let's see what this is like, and then we've got episode two.
0: Yeah, and then what did you make of episode two? Because you didn't get that much Dalek versus Cyberman action, really. I mean, you got—I suppose you got a fair bit, but you probably didn't get as much as most people were probably hoping for. Now, as a fan, I. It
2: was great, but it was undermined by the fact, in my back of my mind, was that, yeah, but they're not really the Cybermen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, so they God. haven't really met, have they? <laughs> oh, stop it, man. Oh, dear. Hey, man, stop it. No, uh, I think, uh, no, it was, it was a bit underwhelming, really, wasn't it? I think that's just because, you know, Russell T. Davis is very good at ramping up the ideas, like you're saying, making something really huge. So, like, you know, this Dalek prison... Um, business and you know, millions of Daleks firing at millions of Cybermen and them having a face off. And uh, oh, the know, idea, the of idea the... is great, you know, but it didn't, you know, I don't know, it just you just knew it wasn't as big as it could have been. It's not the war that we were looking for, but it's okay, it's okay. I think one of my favorite things was the you know, like one of our listeners said, the little chat between them. Um, that was always quite control. fun. And, Mick, and Mickey's, um. Remarks to it were hilarious. Oh, there's the, there's the the bit between the Daleks
2: and the Simon where he he says there's one way in which Cybermen are superior, isn't there? You're better at dying, yeah, or something.
1: Great line, yeah,
2: really good. Pest um,
0: control, yes, yes,
1: yeah. and they're right, <laughs> absolutely right, aren't they? It is pest control because the Daleks are far superior. So you're just waiting for the those four Daleks to wipe. I it think all out.
0: Simon would probably disagree with you, but I'm not going to. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: never said they were better I just, just uh, more interesting I think Cybermen but that's me really? they the well, dullest thing that's ever been in Doctor Who the dullest thing? yeah pretty well, much mm, well from a horror side of things I think there's well there's, I still think there's more to be tapped
1: but let's move on no 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 don't move on I think you've got a good point actually there's there is a lot more to be found out about the Cyberman. They haven't yet tapped into the best part of what it should be. Um, you know, the Tenth Planet I think had one of the best types of Cyberman there was in in you know in in its idea, not really its actual kind of uh, look. But um, and they should bring that scariness back, that kind of weird body horror. You know. Uh, The the twisted idea that we could be half cybernetic and half human and how that would, uh, you know, affect us as humans. They haven't really explored that in a way that is quite, you know, makes your spine chill. It could be. But, and also, you know, you've got all these different amalgams of the Cybermen, haven't you? The the ones that walk around in the moon boots, you've got the ones in the Tomb of the Cybermen, you've got the Cybus ones, and not any of them have really, and even the Nightmare and Silver ones, none of them have really got a. they're not that fearful, I don't think. As a kid, I wasn't scared by them, but the Daleks terrified me. How how sad is
2: it that the nearest we've got to that on screen is um, Attack of the Cybermen? Very the scene, sad. I, very, was really, very, really, very sad. really, very sad. But it yeah. is the nearest thing we've got to it. That's yeah, true.
1: Yeah. But the these the Daleks have got. You know, their motive is racism. It's it's Nazism. It's it's there. It's just you know, wipe the universe out or turn them into us. Um, Whereas the Cybermen, their motives change each time we see them. So it's kind of well, what's your point? You know, what be like us? Yeah, okay. Well, that's just the same as the Daleks, really, isn't it? So, no, I don't know. They they need to have something, another motive.
0: <laughs> well, the the thing is with the Cybermen is that once you've turned everybody into a robot where are you going to go with the story and sadly you know even by the start of the 10th planet the 10th planet is no better than any other sideman story it's just mm. got sideman with real hands in so we all <laughs> think it lo- so so we all think they look better because you know they've got metal arms and real hands but really that is the one nod of the head to the original idea but the thing is like i say Once you've turned everybody into a robot, where are you going to take the story from there? And every single Cyberman story has started with everybody already turned into robots. And even Attack of the Cybermen, you know, it shows the Cybermen kidnapping people and turning them into robots. But, and Lee, you'll agree with this because of spare Mm. parts, you know, the real kicker about the Cyberman story is not... When you've already got people who are turned into robots turning other people into robots, Mm. it's how and why did those people choose to turn themselves into robots in the first place.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, And then you get to
0: understand why they're doing what they're doing. Exactly. And, of course, you know, that story is already told before they even turn up on screen. Mm. Mm. So uh, there's no way you can go with it. And actually, in Rise of the Cyberman in Rise of the Cybermen, where they sort of readdress that and come at it from the perspective of modern technology as opposed to spare parts technology, um is as close as you're probably ever gonna get. I
1: think the best um the best character, the best Cyberman character we've seen so far is Handels. <laughs> simply yeah, because simply because think... he's, he's the invisible companion, the one that gets forgotten. <laughs> Yeah, but That's I think you're a...
0: being a bit facetious when you say best. You're saying the one who you enjoyed <laughs> the most. Yeah, I am.
1: <laughs> facetious is the right word. Isn't yeah. T-
2: Tobias Thorne is partly cybernized though, isn't
1: he? Yeah, he is. Mm.
0: He yeah. is, but again, nothing comes out of it, not really.
1: Yeah. No, but that that, uh, that makes him... You know, he's a bit, I can't remember now, is he a bit stronger or something? He, does he throw somebody across a room? I can't remember now. He but, does at one point, but yeah, throughout so, the rest
0: of the story, it may, makes no difference whatsoever. So
1: there there lies the, the scariness. You know, he's got the strength to throttle you in a second. And he's also a very intelligent, evil businessman uh, as well. Um, and Lumix, I mean, Simon and robots, they should be intelligent too but like you, you know, they've they've lost their emotion haven't they so that's their weakness um that's their achilles heel really because you can use emotion against most things that are just cold and heartless because you can think out of the box
0: can't you you can use intuition against logic
1: that's mm-hmm. it thank you very much
0: <laughs> and absolutely you're right that is the sideman's fatal flaw but not only is it a fatal flaw it also makes them a very dull enemy to come up against. It's like... In Destiny of... I mean... Army of Ghosts is almost a remake of Destiny of the Daleks. In that Destiny of the Daleks... you've got the Daleks against the Movellans... and here you've got the Daleks against the Cybermen. And although they didn't go down that route... of making it about... how do two armies with perfect logic... outlogic each other... when neither of them has intuition... they find somebody who has intuition to turn the fight against the others. Of course, that doesn't get addressed in our, in Doomsday because it is just an excuse to have Daleks and Cybermen shooting at each other, while the story that Russell T. Davis really wants to tell, the story of how Rose gets left behind in a parallel universe, mm. you know, is told in the background. Mm. And although the Dalek and Cyberman story is not brilliantly successful, uh, on the budget they had you know uh, given what um constraints they had mm. to work within i think they did a really good job yeah yeah they did and the the scene that you were quoting from a minute ago where the pest control scene okay we all remember that because it's amusing but at the same time that's as much as you need <laughs> to tell the story of what would happen in you know a proper you know years long universe spanning war between those two species it's all there in a nutshell in that uh, little dialogue they have in that scene there
1: yeah you know the daleks are going to win because they're the cult of Skaro. they're the ones that think outside the box from the other daleks they're they're designed to be hmm. you know strategists and thinkers and that's what you didn't get in destiny of Daleks. that's why davros turned up wasn't it they needed him yeah yeah to be thinking uh, you know to give them ideas that they hadn't got because they were in stalemate. So that you know, as soon as they start talking to the Cybermen and and having a go at them and, and making jokes about them, how useless they are, you already know that the Daleks are going to be winning on this because they can think much stronger and they're tough as old boots, so you're never going to get through so. the Dalekanium,
0: are you? You've kind of... The, the, there are a couple of other differences between the two species as well. I mean, the Cybermen, for instance, although they look like soldiers, metal soldiers, really what they are is metal men. With the soldier thing being ostensibly a secondary aspect, they're people who, re- uh, you know, whose primary reason for replacing the blood parts with steel was to live forever. Right. It wasn't to conquer. They didn't turn themselves into Cybermen in order to conquer. They turned themselves into Cybermen in order to extend their
1: lifespans. Survive, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, you've got a similar thing with the Daleks, but whereas the Cybermen have just built metal suits that they happen to have put weapons on, what the Daleks have actually done is build tanks to keep the flesh part alive inside, which is, you know... Which is sounds like a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference really. The mm. Cybermen replace all the flesh parts, but the Daleks keep the flesh parts alive on the inside mm. and build a tank in which to uh keep that flesh part alive. Mm. So for my money, the Daleks were always gonna win that fight. Mm. Um let's, the, not, let's
2: <coughs> before we move on from this story, mm. the, the, of course there's the lovely opening to Army of Ghosts, you know, with the the little um the prologue Ghost with... Ghostbusters? <clears throat> Sorry? Ghostbusters? Oh, well, yeah, that's cool. I love that bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, the bit with Rose right at the start where she said this is a story of how I died. And oh, I'm whole not too keen on that. You don't like it? I, no, I, I not really. I quite liking it at the time. Um, but, of course, the, the big ending, I mean, you couldn't have had a more heartbreaking ending, really. It was. It was oh, yeah. That, that was really good, even though it's a massive rip-off of a... I, I, I'm not going to spoiler, but there is a very famous trilogy of books which are fantastic, and it's completely ripped off the end of it. But oh, I not th- The
0: Hunger Games? No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, no, but I think RTD, I think at some point, admitted it, that he'd nicked it from that. I'm not sure. I I mean, he he steals from thing. things anyway, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I won't spoil it for people, no, but no, it's don't. the ending of a well, really, been, really d- good set of books.
0: I don't know what books you're talking about, I'll and I don't afterwards. know why you're afraid to spoil it for people because who he's... are either... Well, he spoiled it for me the other
1: day, and uh, I was quite upset. Given, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were you Cause... ever
0: going to read this trilogy of books?
1: <laughs> no, I just wanted to live in... <laughs> absolute um you know ignorance ignorance that's it i want to live in ignorance and just believe that rtd has has created the most emotional and beautiful thing in dr who ever himself (laughs) from nowhere all right (laughs) so
2: i spoiled the books and spoiled the dr who for you at the same time yes
0: Yes. (laughs) i don't see any reason not to spoil the books they're out there people would either have read them or are unlikely to be reading them off the back of this podcast especially as you've not named them Mm. would you want me to name them then yeah why not his dark materials Okay, fair enough. It's an identical
2: ending, pretty much. Well, I mean, yeah. They, <clears throat> the only difference being that the Doctor and Rose don't want to part, but um, in the books they feel that they have to. They, And interestingly, it's all to do with repairing holes between parallel universes. Oh, so well, there you go.
0: Yeah. I have to say, though, way back in 2006 when this was first on, not being on the internet, so not having access to spoilers... And not having read his dark materials, so not knowing that story, I still managed to predict how the series would going to end.
1: Yeah, I, think as I, soon remember as to, the, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah,
0: as soon yeah. as there was a parallel universe storyline, I said, right, that parallel universe will be back in the last episode, mm-hmm. and Rose will be in one universe, and the Doctor mm-hmm. will be in another. It's the only way it can end.
1: Do you know, that that f- feels easy now, after the Moffat area, uh, area? <laughs> era. Um just trying to guess that I mean that sounds simple doesn't it oh yeah, yeah. she's going to come back and it be a parallel because she's trapped mm, on
0: Russell T Davis' stories always were simple yeah people were always uh, looking for the most complicated explanation <laughs> and they never should
1: I think it was a great idea It's just emotionally <clears> awful and actually you get you know the Doctor moping around for the next season for a bit and I'm kind of glad they carried that on actually because it, it made his character even more successful and believable.
0: Yeah, and real, because if he'd forgotten all about it, it wouldn't have seemed at all real, would it? No,
1: exactly. Oh, it's great. And the music, can I just say, from Murray Gold, is just astounding. Um, But I'm sure people know that already. But every time I play it, I've got to choke back the emotion.
0: (laughs) I will say the only thing that really spoils Army of Ghosts, or Doomsday, rather, I should say, is the plot ending You know, you've got an army of Cybermen, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them. You've got an army of Daleks, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. And how does the Doctor resolve the plot? Well, if you press this button here, (laughs) it sends everybody back out through the door they came in. Fast return switch. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. It's,
1: uh, it's great, uh, yeah, I, but I know, you, I know you don't like that, do you? That, that's just it's
0: cool. entirely implausible because if all <laughs> it took was for you to press a button to send, you know, to reverse the polarity of the uh, parallel universe window, you could have pressed that right at the start of the story, and you know the problem wouldn't have arisen in the first place.
1: Whereas the army of ghosts, Cybermen, Daleks find each other over London, void ships, and parallel universes are plausible. <laughs>
0: <coughs> <coughs> well, yeah, but what I mean, Lee, is in the universe you in instant. which you're... Yes. <laughs> right, well, let's move on, then. You're too far away to smack me, so... Yeah, but I can try. I'm metaphorically doing it. <laughs> Look, I said to Simon last week that we had a situation where, of these ten stories, there were three that were very much at the bottom, there were three that were very much at the top, and the four in the middle were all pretty close to one another... And I said Army of Ghosts was only one point above Tooth and Claw. The story that came in above Army of Ghosts was only three points ahead of that. And all three of those stories switched positions any number of times during Mm. the course of the voting. But we've got a few quotes about the story that came in fourth. And, um, well, here's one from Richard Judge. He says, I can understand why this story is Marmite, but I think it's one of the most affecting Doctor Who stories of all time. When I watch it, I run a whole gamut of emotions. I think it's funny, tender, sad, and also quite horrific. I also like the way that the director elected to film it from Elton's perspective. The viewer has to remember that they are just watching the story from the way Elton chooses to tell it. It was a way of telling a Doctor Who story that up to that point hadn't been attempted before, and I appreciated its boldness, because it's nice that a 45-year-old programme could still surprise you. And lastly... You have to say, it's one of the best casts ever assembled. Proper TV royalty. Mm. Now, John mm. Fetonby said, Love and Monsters is a lovely hymn to Doctor Who fandom, sprained only by the misbegotten Peter K casting. Mm. Uh, Sean M. Vale said, Just a lot of fun. Charming. And finally, Richard Hogarth said, Ello, of clom genius script unfortunately some of the directing choices were not right for me at least love and monsters then fellas before i start bliss was at a party that i
1: once was at <laughs> the lady who plays bliss and uh it was my wife's 21st at the time and they are friends with uh the mother of bliss i know it's bizarre anyway so it was really weird seeing her and thinking hang on a minute i recognize that person last time i saw her watching a puppet show at 21st party love and monsters is a weird one because the first time i watched it i hated it so much i just went what the hell is this this is crap um and then suddenly i did a massive switcheroo the second time watching it and it became one of my favorites of all time um and it kind of jostles in the kind of you know Top ten, top twenty all-time faves of Doctor Who. Now, for me, it's, it's a great episode. Telling, I think the the email from uh, I can't remember the chap's name. You just you just read out did a really good uh, job of explaining it to anybody who's never seen it. That you know, taking it from Elton's point of view and him telling the story um, is exactly it. And I think the, Judge. Thank you. Yeah, the actor who played Elton, who you could probably tell me as well. No, uh, Mark. Mark... uh, Warren. Warren. Oh, Mark Warren, yeah. Mark (laughs) Wootten is the other one. Um, He was the perfect choice, and he had this lovely kind of vulnerable, um, you know, you just wanted to give him a big hug. You you wanted him to be your kind of mate. And he's a a nerd, and of course it's a a lovely nod to uh, fandom. Well, a lovely nod is also a piss take, but... um, it's amazing, isn't it? The one thing that sported it for me personally was Peter Kay being in it, and I'm a bit of a Peter K fan, so, you know, I just think he he, he judged it wrong, as did uh, Mr
0: Lumick I think <clears throat> I am not a Peter K fan, and I do think he judged it wrong as the Absorbalov, but I think before he turned into the Absorbalov, when he was still the fella in the hat whose name escapes me, I thought he was fine during those parts. <laughs> yeah. 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 The only thing I thought that really let the episode down was the chase sequence. Which just looked astoundingly silly. What mm. with the with the hoiks at the beginning? No, the absorber love at the end. Oh. Running god. down the pavement. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's
1: like me running down the pavement to the paper shop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I can actually see that. Um Yes, apart from that though I thought everything was perfectly judged and I thought, I can't remember his name, Dan something he's got one of those amazing names that you shouldn't be able to forget but I have the director, I thought he did an astonishing job with that, Mm. that's a really a really technically technically complicated script and not only has he done it service, he's also improved upon it by taking a lot of the ideas, the technical ideas that were in this script and making them ten times better, there's some Really amazingly accomplished technical stuff going on in that episode. Mm. If you watch it purely from a, I'm going to say that word again, technical perspective, it's uh, it's like a, the kind of thing that you should show students at university who are studying film techniques. Really, it's just filled with amazing stuff. I think it's wonderfully directed, apart from the bit at the end where he runs down the pavement. Mm.
2: Yeah, no, no, you mean the, a lot of the editing, like the bits where. Um, mm. Uh, Elton's pacing around the room and things like that. You get some American TV series who who will spend three minutes using that sort of editing with a piece of bad music in the background because they're trying to make something of it. And And they just do it and it fits in. I remember literally jumping up and down in my seat watching it thinking this is utter joy that Doctor Who is doing something as exciting and emotional and um and touching is that i mean for me it was ticking loads of boxes you know ALO coming on that's one of my favorite songs ever and um and mark warren's just a brilliant actor anyway um and as you say the cast were just brilliant apart from apart from peter k and and i've said before in this podcast i think in the early one of the early episodes that i read an interview with peter k and that that dot two episode is the only thing in his career
0: that he regrets he did i think i read somewhere that he had phoned or emailed Russell T Davies and said look I'm a big Doctor Who fan any chance of getting me a part in the show and really he hadn't been a Doctor Who fan at all he just said that because he quite fancied being primetime BBC One Mm. Mm. I could be doing him a disservice there but I have a feeling I read that somewhere he's a
2: massive TV fan and I can imagine him wanting to be part of Doctor Who as Mm. Doctor Who is part of TV history but I think probably what he misjudged is probably at the time he asked he, he wasn't Quite physically, wasn't able to know what the series was like. Now, you know, possibly if he'd watched the new series up to a point, he might have thought, "Oh, actually, if I go into this, I've got to go into this and treat it seriously, not like you know something in the McCoy era."
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Um, what do we think about the of About Russell T. Davies using the uh, Blue a- Peter competition winner as the it's a, it's
1: a lovely story, isn't it? I love, I love the idea that. This happened that Blue Peter uh, and RTD got together and said, We're going to do this and we're going to make a monster. You know, that I would love to have been that kid, you know, to see that made. But I think it was quite a funny story that I read. Uh, again, people might tell me I'm wrong, but I think RTD uh, met the kid and said, Right, okay, this is the design. What do you think? Showed him the absorbable of costume or whatever. Um, or maybe the kid watched the episode, that's it. And then he talked about it afterwards.
0: And I no, think this it, was on Blue Peter itself.
1: Oh, was it? Because the kid yeah. said something like, "Oh, well, I expected it to be bigger. Bigger. It's supposed to be the size of a bus." Yeah. <laughs> and RTD was, I think, it was crestfallen because it was like, "Oh, well, you didn't kind of specify that." So, um, but it's a love. It's a great idea for a monster. I love the idea of it. And I think what I was quite impressed with, even though it's a, a stupid kind of, you know, it's Peter Kay with a silly hair doing everything, the actual kind of faces in the body was quite horrifically brilliant. And the fact is, the ones that were there the longest were kind of more set into the body, so they were getting more absorbed and they were yeah. becoming less distinguished. You know, you, you couldn't distinguish them from Disting- his skin. Yeah, you know what I mean? But, um, yeah, no, I thought it was great. And, oh, it's just, it's funny and weird and great and crazy and very R C D. I I loved it.
0: Yeah. It is. It's like... Um... It's like the zenith of RTD, really. It's like everything about RTD is in that episode there. Not just about RTD's Doctor Who. It's like, you know, that episode is RTD in a nutshell. 45 minutes, distillation. And
2: do we have an opinion on the um, oral sex joke at the end?
0: Well, you can say it's an oral sex joke. (laughs) It was, wasn't it? (laughs) It doesn't have to be. That's kind of the point. Yeah,
1: I, uh, uh, it's a yes, but it, uh, the the
0: point is, if you don't know what oral sex is, you're going to assume from the line of dialogue that we're talking about kissing. Yes, of course. Uh. Yeah. So you know, it's an oral sex joke for people who think about oral sex. Yeah. For anybody else, it's a lot more innocent. It's like the there's a scene in Gridlock that's very similar. I can't remember specifically what said. But there's a very similar scene in Gridlock. And it's like, yeah, you can take it that way if you want to. If okay. you don't know what that is, then you wouldn't even think about it.
1: Oh, and before I pass you over to Simon, who's about to grab it, i just got to mention Jackie. Um, oh. Yeah, because I, I I was re-watching some of the episodes over the last couple of days, and today I watched um Age of Steel, Rise of the Cybermen. Oh, I miss Jackie. She's so good. Uh, great character, brilliant actress and in this she is just you know she holds her own she could have her own series and i'd watch it i've got to be honest her fighting aliens imagine that it'd be great um (laughs) she doesn't quite
0: play it straight either this was the thing i think everybody was expecting russell t davis's doctor who to be like eastenders with monsters but it's not far from it it's you know eastenders is the very gritty serious soap and Cora is the bubbly, fun, slightly cartoonish soap, right? I mean, not always, but in generally speaking, Korra tends to be a lot more fun. And you know, this feels a lot, a lot more like, well, even, even further removed than Korra from EastEnders. It's almost like a parody of a soap, or a pastiche of a soap. Mm. You know the characters.
2: It's actually very clever her inclusion in this episode because, um, <clears throat> from a, a character point of view, you you see her behaving like we've had hidden since of before, where you know she gets the attention from a younger younger man, she absolutely loves it, but yeah. at the heart of it, she is a mother, and yeah. you can see the mother scorned, and it's it's played beautifully because you kind of believe, you know, even though he's younger, you think, oh, you know. Uh, you can see it's the the potential is there for her to her to have a relationship with with the younger man, and, of and it could have happened for him too because yeah.
0: he actually genuinely falls for her. Yeah, and then when she finds out why he was originally there, you know, it's it's disaster for both of them, isn't it?
2: And that's just one little section in this whole episode. Um, yeah, it's funny the reaction at the time. I I really really loved it from the off, uh, despite its massive. Floor, which we've said a num- numerous times, so we won't again. Um, it's a hugely powerful episode, and um, almost as much a love letter to the, to the series as uh, the Doctor's wife. It's it's that same, yeah, se- seeing the the Doctor Who experience from a different angle that hadn't been explored before. It's fantastic.
0: It's yeah. I mean, ostensibly, it is a. <clears throat> analogy of fandom but what it's really saying is you know it is a love letter to the classic series doctor who it is the people making the new series telling the old series how much they love
1: it it is yeah and jackie um just oh forgotten now. i was gonna say about <laughs> oh no her character you, you were saying earlier simon that uh, you get a little bit more of a character development um and you do you get to see her protecting not only her daughter but she's finally protecting the doctor as well so, you know, you, you get that kind of loyalty from Jackie straight away in that episode. You know, you come away thinking, yeah, she's uh, she might not approve of the doctor, but she's she's there to protect him uh, as well. So it made him more powerful. It gave him more of a presence than just, a you know, some kind of chav mum, mum, mum on estates shouting at people for no reason, <laughs> which is what she started off doing.
0: And of course, that pays off in the final two-parter that we talked about just yeah, now. Yeah, of course. Um, before we get into the top three, then uh, let's take another the the final email, shall we? And this is from Ian Martin. He says, "Morning, fellas. I've just I'm just listening to your series two podcast. I had sort of intended to vote myself, but having recently rewatched series two, I'm just feeling so apathetic about the whole sorry run." I would have had to have put Rise of the Cybermen Age of Steel last, though. Trigger as Davros, inventing an army of unthinking death robots, a needless new origin story. I hated this quite significantly the first time I saw it, and it gets immeasurably worse with each viewing. I'm glad the Idiot's Lantern got short shrift, too, just cringeworthy. The final two-parter was unbelievably dreadful, too, despite having the reasonably hot Tracy Ann Oberman in it. The Satan Pit story was bearable. On the whole, I'd have probably marked eight stories in joint last place and only offered positive thoughts about School Reunion and The Girl in the Fireplace. But to be honest, as the passage of time and the glory of the Moffat era jointly served to highlight just how shoddy the RTD era really was, I can't see myself ever sitting through a Series 2 episode ever again.
1: However, <laughs> yeah, that <was> strong. <clears throat>
0: well, I didn't want to save this for the end of the episode for obvious reasons. <laughs> However, continues Ian, as regards my watching the key to time, we loved the androids of Tara, despite <laughs> the would-be king being a bit of a damp squib. Count Grendel was fun, possibly inspiring JNT to consider bringing back the master. Stones of Blood was a bit ropey, and the eponymous stones were a bit of an afterthought. Césaire, once blue-painted, was a bit tasty, but I'm loving Mary Tam's work. (laughs) I did email him back and say, so, not an RTD fan then, and he did write back to me and say the following. He said... He did a great job in most respects, but for me his stories were frustratingly aimed at 10 million normal viewers, not specifically aimed at me personally, whereas the Moth stories are much more tailored to exactly what I personally want to see, i.e. a lot of them have Alex Kingston in them. (laughs) 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 To be honest... He says, I always felt RTD's commentaries exuded an unwarranted smugness, but you can't argue with the sort of audience figures the show was getting, and my gratitude to him far outweighed my feeling that most of his stories weren't up to much. Seasons two to four were actually pretty weak, save for the few episodes by Moffat and Paul Cornell. By The Doctor's Daughter, I was beginning to panic. But RTD went at the right time. Well, only four episodes too late. A shame his swan song was arguably the absolute nadir of Doctor Who's TV output.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I like it, the fact that he's sharing his opinion with us. And it's a nice strong one as well. Um, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, that, and that's a, that, that's coming from him personally, obviously. So that's great. Thank you very much for that. I, I... I'd have to sit back and think about what he's just said because there's a lot of things he's he's hitting that I may be thinking in the back of my head. Oh no, I wouldn't want to say that. Why would I want to say that? I, th- I love this season, um, and it, it is odd. I thought about the whole season earlier. Um, no, we'll get to that at the end. But um, yeah, yeah, I think he's got a point in a lot of respects, actually. But mm, no, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna I think, to, I'm gonna have to think uh, about it. But I, I, yeah, good letter, good letter.
0: I think Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who is much better character drama than it is sci-fi. Mm, and yeah, I do mean yeah. sci-fi rather than science fiction. But nevertheless, I still think it's a great series. I just think Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who has pushed it on so far that I kind of... I, I'm not going to agree with what Ian said. <laughs> but I do find it hard looking back at the Russell T. Davies ones, given how much more Dense and how much more lively and interesting the Stephen Moffat ones are.
2: I um I think the da- the point he's making about it being written for the average audience as opposed to a Doctor Who fan, um, is it's only dangerous if things which would be good for the series are diluted for those people. And I don't think he did that. I don't think it it was. A weak series because of that, um, and I think there's a lot there's a lot of common sense in doing that. If you're trying to get a series back on telly that's going to stay on telly, you've got to do a certain amount of that, and it's part of the reason that the series changes so much. I think. Um, but but looking at a certain theme that was going through his letter, um, he must be very very pleased that we've got Keely Hawes coming up with a new series.
0: Oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> Calm down. Oh, Tracy Ann Overman <laughs> and, um, Alex, Alex Kingston, Kingston and Mary Tam. Yeah. The man has taste. Yeah. That's no denying it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Right, we're on to the top three stories now. Actually, we've been going for so long, we really ought to save these last three stories for another podcast because otherwise we're going to be here for another hour. (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, actually, you know, the more you like something, the less there sometimes is to talk about it. So let's carry on and see how we go. Three stories left. Before I read a couple of comments out about the one that came in third, would you like to try and guess which of these three came in third? Satan Pit. Lee, what do you think? I'm I'm going to agree with you. I think Satan Pit. Okay, Sean M. Vale said about the story that came in third, just a bit too long, but some genuinely scary stuff. Then there was a giant demon. And Richard Hogarth said, a great two-parter and one of my fave stories ever. You're mm. absolutely right. It was The Impossible Planet and The Satan Pit. And I have to say, I think this is a fantastic story. The only bit I don't think I like. Well, the first episode of the two is just exposition for 45 minutes. It's astonishing that they get away with it, but it's so well written and so well um, acted by most of the people involved that they do get away with it, and so well directed as well. That 45 minutes of exposition feels like, you know, 40. Well, it feels like half an hour of great storytelling. What a bizarre bizarre episode. And brilliant and scary. And then the second episode's got some amazing twists and turns. And that beautiful scene where he goes down the hole on the length of um, steel wire or whatever it is. And the music, Murray Gold really pushes the boat out on this one. It's a great two episodes. The only bit of it I think I don't really like, and I can fully appreciate why it was there, is the mortgage scene where Rose talks about settling down and getting a mortgage, mm. which felt like a bit too far. But you can see why it's there. It was part of the sort of hubris storyline going through the series, building up to the finale. Guys, the impossible planet. The
1: the mortgage scene, I think, it did need to be there. Maybe not necessarily that those words, that situation. Yeah, I'm saying did, I understand yeah, why yeah, it was there. It did need to be there. Um, it's it's a, a brilliant two-parter. Um Possibly one of the best, I, I think, two-parters. Uh, the fact that you get that wonderful moment of him in the darkness, hanging onto the line, talking about uh, his beliefs, is so beautifully acted by David Tennant, and the, the the pace is so fantastically slow. It feels slow, it isn't actually. The way that you know the, the actual episode is rumbling on the way it's acted, it's actually quite quick, but. It feels like you've got time, there's breathing space to actually think about something a bit different. The doctor's beliefs in the universe and he's running it through his head. He's not sure. What is this about? What is this? Um that's that's that was a marked moment for me. And when we finally get to see a massive CGI demon, um, you know, which was just kind of dead cool really, wasn't it, for for Doctor Who fan like, Oh wow, we're finally getting some CGI gold here right in front of us. Um and then realising it's an empty shell was absolute genius. That had already escaped. Kind of guessed it, I know. But it was, uh, yeah, the whole thing was brilliantly played out. The Doctor really did feel like he was kind of out of the action and, and stuck and things. The only thing I had a problem with is him stumbling across the TARDIS. You know, I I don't like oh, those. Wow. I hate those coincidental moments. that <laughs> really bug me. But um, that's it, really. Um Yeah, no, it's great. It reminded me of, um, not that it's meaning anything to either of you, uh, Doom, playing Doom on the PlayStation, because that has a very similar kind of thing about going to another planet, Mars in this case, or the the, 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 um, Martian moons, Phobos and Demnos and stuff. And you get this kind of um, satanic kind of feeling all the way through it with strange creatures and you've got to shoot the hell out of them. But it, it it was a big part of my, you know, 20s, that game. And as soon as I saw the Satan Pit, I just thought, aha, somebody's been playing Doom. Because <laughs> that's what it felt like. But, uh, yeah, and the oud Excellent.
2: Of oh, course, cool. so yeah, the Ood. The introduction of the Ood. Do you know what? Um, I think my brain is wired differently to a lot of fans because I saw this the first time and I felt... It was a little bit sort of treading water, and I didn't have an... <laughs> I know, I know, no, no, don't get me wrong, I am I know I was wrong. Um, and I watched it, and I didn't kind of latch on to anything in it. And I thought, yeah, okay, it's another Dot 2 story, can we get on to the, some of the meaty stuff now? And that sound, <laughs> it sounds really ironic. And I watched it a second time, uh, fairly recently, towards the end of the last year, and absolutely adored it. Um, and I think it's the it's the Moffat effect. It's the thing of just not having any expectation and just watching it, and it's a ride, and it's beautifully directed, beautifully written, beautifully acted. Um, it gets better every time you see it. This story, oh, and it's it really got, does. And it's got Claire. What's her face in it? Saying about yeah. the ladies. Oh, she's she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Um, you know, you got the thing of the Doctor and Rose feeling like they're losing each other again and all this sort of thing, which becomes a a recurring thing. I know, I know it's kind of realistic from a characterization point of view, but it does get a little bit wearing because I'd watching it again, the end of last year, I'd forgotten how much that was a part of the series at that point that they did have this piece of elastic between them, you know, and they were always worried about losing each other. And you thought, well, why do they go somewhere dangerous? Then if you're that worried about losing each other, why the hell are you going down in pits and stuff? Um, But then we wouldn't have a series so um but no just just really really great psychologically brilliant and um that lovely thing of everyone involved playing it straight as well and oh imagery wise the the bit where the girl floats off into space is just gorgeous yeah. um yeah, yeah, yeah. it visually is stunning and possibly the weakest visual thing in it is the demon i think because <laughs> it was very obviously cgi but as you say, you know, budgets and what have you, there's only so much they
0: can do. And for Doctor Who, it was amazing. It's also a remake of Kinder, one of my favourite of the 1980s stories. Yeah, with no adric. Well, no. <laughs> but basically, it's, you know, about a small bunch of humans at a isolated outpost, surrounded by a sort of slave mm. race that who they can't read who turn on them and there's a kind of religious backdrop to it and something huge and big turns on them that they can't quite understand and so it's very like kinder yeah
1: and uh obviously the um the mara jumping into a human brain and this sort of thing is, is obviously very similar yeah. as well <clears throat> all um, in there the, the the other great thing i really really liked about this these two episodes is i'm a bit of a and an old-fashioned science fiction nut. And I like those old-fashioned science fiction covers, you know, astounding stories and all that. And this actually did feel like every time we we looked at the the spaceship taken off, for instance, and, um, you know, the impossible planet and the actual kind of outpost itself, all of those things... Just felt like pulp science fiction to me, and uh, oh, I yeah. just adored it. You know,
0: the art designers went to town on the sort of fifties feel with the spaceships during yeah. the Russell T Davis era.
2: <laughs> oh, let's not let's not forget it's the first appearance of a recurring character, yes. the Doctor's spacesuit.
0: Is that a recurring character? Well,
2: it is. He, yeah. uh, it appears in is it two, three more stories? He keeps getting it out. Even Matt Smith. Matt Smith wore it as well.
0: Yeah. Sorry. I wouldn't have described it as a character. <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm. I was joking, but <laughs> I, I think it's lovely that something like I that you were does about come to back. Say
0: something about the ood, then. <laughs> no, no,
2: no. I I love that spacesuit, and I love the fact that he, you know he just he's hung it up on a hook somewhere, a bit like Mister Ben, and he he puts it on every now and again. <laughs> Mister Ben.
0: Yeah. You can imagine him getting dressed up as you know, when he's Peter Capaldi, maybe he'll get dressed up as Tom Baker one day and, you know, go to a unit reunion or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Speaking Um, of reunions... Oh. uh, We've talked about... In this series two, we've talked about... We're about to talk about Girl in the Fireplace in a few minutes. We've talked about Love and Monsters. We've talked about... Parallel of Cybermen Origins story... We've talked about New Earth, in which, you know, the doctor and the companion are swapping bodies with the villain. And we've talked about Fear Her, in which there are no bad guys whatsoever. And yet, in series two, the oddest story, the most unusual, the most weird idea, the thing that you'd never have thought to do this early in the re- you know, the revivification of the series, is School Reunion to bring back a character who'd not been in the series for 20-odd years. Why on earth would anybody sit down and say, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll go back 20 years and we'll bring back a character that 90% of the people watching this episode will never have heard of, let alone seen, and we'll treat her like everybody should know exactly who she is. What a weird idea. <laughs> and yet... Richard Hogarth says, great innovative villains, with Sarah Jane and K-9 returning triumphantly. I will never look at Chips the same way again. (laughs) And Sean M. Vale says, it's got Sarah Jane in it and some lovely acting. Meanwhile, John Feedenby says, school reunion is a brilliant episode of Sarah Jane Adventures, but was kind of a Purell Doctor Who episode.
1: (laughs) I think Purell might be the wrong word but um he's right it does feel like a sarah jane adventures but we didn't have that at that point did we Uh, what it what it felt like actually and i think this has been commented on by other people and so does the sarah jane adventures it kind of felt like the original doctor who in some respects it had that kind of a feeling of watching it on a saturday night um uh, tom baker episodes or whatever it had that same kind of not really scaring the hell out of you, trying to do something different, sexy, weird, grown-up, whatever. It was actually just felt like a good old story with a good old villain and a couple of um, strange creatures and things. And it happened to be set in a school. So, you know, it, it, it did feel like an old Doctor Who episode. And um, I looked at that thinking, this is odd. We have really properly gone back in time here. Um, but it absolutely worked even with the strange grange hill setting
0: it's uh we discussed this last week so i shan't go over it too much it suffered from being in a block, the first block of the series of episodes, three episodes, all directed by the same director as part of one block and in too much of a hurry. And some of it's not particularly well directed. Some of the performances, particularly from the kids, aren't great. And like I said last week, it's not the kids' fault. It's the production's fault. They just didn't give them enough time to get it right. So I don't think school reunion will ever be one of my favorite episodes because I don't think it moves, and I don't think the acting is quite up to the job. But having said that, David Tennant and Elizabeth Sladen, and of course Mickey and Rose as well, you know, those central four Really it's, make well, that episode. It's a
1: character piece, isn't it? I mean, the whole mm. thing is, and even uh, Anthony Head. Um, I, I think somebody was disagree- oh, great. Somebody disagreed with me a lot the other day. Oh, who who the heck was it? I can't remember saying. Oh no, he was terrible in it. What was he doing in it? And it was all this kind of business. And I was thinking, no, no, no. It was. I thought he was excellent. Uh, it's a shame that he was a really, <laughs> 'cause really, because the Quillotanes <laughs> I thought were a bit poor. But um, he he would have made a fantastic recurring enemy. If not the master, in fact, thinking about it, so uh, yeah.
2: Oh no, he's much better in the um, uh, the animated
1: oh, yeah. uh,
2: thing, the uh, Infinite Quest. He's much better in that.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a, in going back to the subject of the episode and it being a character piece. There's a great science fiction concept behind it: the quest to find the God Equation. Mm. But not, but, in which a, is,
1: but not in a school and them eating a bunch of chips. It, yeah, it, it it's doesn't a, doesn't that's what work. I'm saying. It's, like a, it's a great school.
0: concept, a great idea, and it's kind of thrown away, which is a bit of a shame.
1: This feels a little bit like a comic strip, doesn't it, <laughs> in some places? You think it's the Krillotanes <laughs> the, and the setting and the paradigm and all that would have worked um, quite well in Doctor Who magazine at some point. But the actual kind of the emotional, weighty character pieces involved were just just so f- beautifully played, and they were very funny. The whole thing was funny. Mickey saying he's the tin dog, and all that sort of stuff.
0: Um, oh, and the Loch Ness monster. Yes,
1: uh, that was so well acted. The pacing with that could have been horrible. Yeah. That could have been horrible to watch, actually. But no, the, they both got it absolutely spot on, both of them.
0: And because they got it so spot on. Um, last week we talked about that scene in the Idiot's Lantern, do you remember Simon that I wasn't very enamoured of mm, Yeah. and in School Reunion Toby Whithouse does something very similar in that he takes you in a single scene with no cutaways, he takes you from a point where the characters are feeling one thing at the start to something else at the end and he does it in a way that you can believe
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, he shows mm-hmm. how it should be done Yeah. Um, but uh, by the by School reunion. Utterly lovely, really, isn't it?
2: Well, it is. It's testament to the strength of K-9 and Sarah Jane as uh, as characters. I mean, if you're going to argue um, it's, a, it's a funny decision to bring back old characters into a new series like that, then you could argue the same about the Daleks. The fact is they've passed through folklore and through... Well, the, the Daleks
0: are slightly different.
2: No, yeah, but they also rely on people's memories, you know. um, People, the new generation, possibly only
0: knew about Daleks because of what their mums and dads had told them. I don't think you need to know about Daleks to get.
2: No, I know. know, I think you
0: only have to see them and hear them to get it, Simon. Okay,
2: well, let's put Daleks to one side. The
0: fact is that... I'm talking about the fact that just about one year into the Um, rebirth of the series they've suddenly decided to base an episode entirely upon the concept of nostalgia
1: Mm hmm but it also I mean I think it was was well placed I don't know what came first really the idea to have Rose um, seeing another companion years on that had been dumped by the doctor, um, essentially, um, or whether it was like, oh, we can get um, you know Liz Slane in. Should we do a Sarah Jane episode? Okay, let's work that direction. But I'm hoping it's it's the you know the one with um, Billy Piper's character basically seeing somebody else older who's had adventures being left on Earth, because um, it just makes it. Because so it
0: pre-empts the way the series is going to end. Absolutely,
1: of yeah. So it's quite an important character development for her as well to see this.
2: There's also um, a certain amount of authenticity—the fact of David Tennant being a lifelong fan as well. You get a certain amount of authenticity to his reaction and how he behaves with around Sarah Jane, um, which you know, would you have got that with Christopher Eccleston? Possibly not. You know, it would have. We know yeah. it would have been just acting. <laughs> Um, and well, Matt Smith, Matt Smith played it fairly well in the Death of the Doctor, didn't he? But it wasn't it wasn't the same connection that there was in um, School Reunion. No,
0: those scenes where he first the scene where he first meets her and she doesn't know who he is yet, and then the scene that follows it where she sees the Tardis and realises who he's mm. been all this time are uh, just heart in mouth moments.
1: They are, and it's it's just before she starts this kind of strange head banging acting that she does. Um, when she's really she's happy always done when that. she's really happy she headbangs her head back doesn't she and, and kind of laughs and claps her hands yeah and you see that a lot in sarah jane adventures and in journey ends as well and that becomes a little bit annoying after a while but uh no the acting in this all round i think apart from kenny he was, was pretty good <laughs> sorry kenny if you're listening
0: well that's what i'm saying about they didn't have time to get the right performances You know, particularly out of the less experienced actors. Yeah, we'll cover Kenny in the child episode. (laughs) (laughs) Should we move on to the story that came top, then? Go on. I mean, we know what it is now, but Richard Hargar says, a great story, great acting, um, and a great example of Stephen Moffat. And uh, Sean M. Vale says, took me a while to come round to this one. Nice concept. I don't buy the Doctor's emotional connection to Raynette, though. On the other hand, I say it is the best episode of the entire and T. Davis era. You like this one, don't you? <laughs> I really do. That's pretty much all I've got to say on the subject. <laughs> well can I... I don't need to say anything more. I like it more than any other episode
2: oh j r as a massive a massive fan of this. <laughs> You wonder what I was going to say then. Massive fan of this story then. How I didn't it, wonder what you were going to say. How, I just listened to you. How do you address the fact that the... And it's not a flaw, it's just a, um, uh, an observation because I adore the episode, is the fact that the Doctor seems to forget his relationship with Rose around Renette. How do you address well, we know,
0: that? Well, we know why. Go on. Well, because Stephen Moffat didn't have the notes not to do that.
2: <laughs> oh, you're doing that writer thing.
0: Yeah, well, I, that's how I watch all television. That's how I do everything. Yeah, no, that yeah, okay. Well,
1: again, I think when I first watched this, I wasn't that enamoured with it. I just thought, okay, the doctor's being a bit silly here. There's a very quick love story. Uh, you know, why would he risk his entire existence for for one human? When he's already got Rose to be looking after, who saved him through a lot of stuff, it it just felt. If you know, I'm trying to nitpick here because it's actually an excellent episode, but there are slight bits that do annoy me um, about it. The design, I mean, the design of the whole thing is absolutely incredible. And the more and more I thought about the actual timey wimey, well, there's no timey wimey, is there? It's just like time corridors, idea. It made sense. The more It's a typical Stephen Moffat. You watch it the first time, you go, what? And then you go and watch it again and again and again. And yeah, he does actually explain everything you need to know. You just have to be he listening. He always you, does. You just it's have just to a, be listening. But yeah. I I do feel that this would have been wor- worked much better if Donna had been around, actually. Um, and then he could fall in love with uh, Renette in that kind of short time. And then she could be you know banging him on the shoulder and saying, oh, come on, love boy, get with it, sort of thing. But having, yeah. wor- having Rose... It did. It did feel wrong, actually. And it did feel like they were just... He, the Doctor and Minette it was a story about them. It wasn't Mickey or Rose. And they were I've both say. sat on the side. And it was such a shame seeing Mickey not being used, like Turlo in his yep. later days and Adric. And you just think, oh, no. Well, I said this his when first we talked trip, about... he's
0: done nothing. <laughs> I said this when we talked about the male companions, didn't I? Yeah. Horse you get on... Mickey into space and you stick him on the sidelines. Look, when I first saw this episode... For the first half an hour, I thought it was awful, because there's Rose gone off with the Doctor, and the previous week she had exhibited some major signs of jealousy that Mickey was coming along, because she's in love with the Doctor and wants him all to herself. This week, she doesn't seem to care that he's off falling in love with somebody else. He doesn't seem to care about her because he's off falling for somebody else. Rose seems quite happy that Mickey's along. Mickey gets completely left behind. Mm. The Doctor's prancing around for the first half an hour been a right dick, you know. <laughs> particularly when you get that scene where he's either drunk or pretending to be drunk. Yeah, that's the bit that got me. <laughs> boasting about... Well, basically boasting about shagging a famous French person. Yeah. But you get to the end of the episode and you realise why you've had all that stuff. Because if it hadn't been that up at the start, if it hadn't have seemed so easy for the first half an hour of the episode for things to slot into place, it wouldn't be quite so heartbreaking in the last ten minutes when it all gets pulled away from under you.
1: And it is. The emotional moment, I mean again there's a Satan Pit thing where you get time to breathe in the episode um, you get this, this the very last part where the um, coffin's going off, you know, and uh, he's just standing there, and he's got the letter and he puts it in his jacket, and the emotion that David Tennant's showing is is kind of it, it's there's a lot going on behind those eyes, and he's not even moving his face. It's um, such a brilliant. He piece doesn't of acting. speak in that scene. He doesn't speak. He doesn't speak. He barely moves. Uh, but you, the just, bit that got me, you're looking at him thinking, oh my god, you know this the bit the that, stuff that got going me. On.
0: Was the scene before where he's in the fireplace after she's just said, You can't get back to your ship. And he says, No. And she says, Well, hang on, the fireplace is still around. And he says, Oh, is it? And all of a sudden, the excitement in his face. (laughs) And he's going to take her along. He's Mm going to take her along to the TARDIS. And he gets to the fireplace and he goes through. And he's so excited. And I'm screaming at the telly. Don't leave her behind. You know what's going to happen next. You know it. Yes.
1: Do you know what? When you look at that scene again, I'll probably ruin this for you. Um, He says, um, oh, no, it's not that scene. It's the bit where he shouts out, I've just snogged Madame de Pompadour. Right? It's the realisation that he snogged her. And he he hits the kind of button that spins him round on the underneath of the mantelpiece. The whole mantelpiece lifts up. So... (laughs) That part of the set is, like, really badly glued together. So I looked at it and thought, no, that's supportive for me now. I can't watch that episode ever again.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough.
2: Oh, clockwork droids. Yeah, they are beautiful. There's that bit where he he takes the face off and says, oh, you are beautiful. And you just yeah, you are beautiful. What an amazing piece of model making. But you've got those, that lovely thing that Stephen Moffat does of that weird juxtaposition, just like you had dinosaurs on the spaceship. horse on The moment that horse was on the spaceship, I was thought it was fantastic. So odd. And and the human parts in the ship, I love all that. For me, it always, and I don't know why, it, it comes across as a really, really good Star Trek episode.
1: <laughs>
2: um, and for some reason, it reminds me of City on the Edge of Forever, probably because you've got this yeah. thing where he goes somewhere else and falls in love. With yeah. uh, this character, you know Joan Collins' character, and then, and for a different reason, you know she dies, and and he can't bring her back, and um, really, really love it. It's strange this thing where you juggle the
0: two places. Um, well, that's what Stephen Moffat does really well. You don't really get an inkling of that in the Empty Child. I mean, uh, compared to all of Stephen Moffat's other stories, the Empty Child is so standard Doctor Who fare, but from The Girl in the Fireplace, he's taken this concept of mixing things. You know, most people will take an idea or a selection of ideas. I mean, if we talk about the shopping list TV, if Russell T Davies gives somebody a shopping list and says, right, I want Daleks, I want it to be in 1920s Manhattan, and I want pig slaves... You write a story in which you've got Daleks in 1920s Manhattan and you've got pig slaves. You give Stephen Moffat a list of things to incorporate in his story and he doesn't just use them. He mixes them right up so that you can't even remember what they are in the first place. (laughs) It's a real hybrid kind of storytelling. There's no... And this has become very true since he... As taken over as a showrunner... When Russell T Davies was doing it... You had one set in the future... One set in the past... One set in the present... One set in the future... One set in the past... One set in the present... (coughs) Since Stephen Moffat's taken over... You might have one that's set in the future... And the past and the present... Followed by one that's set in the future... And the past and the present... Etc, (laughs) etc. There's no... there, There are no black and white lines... In Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who... It can go anywhere do anything, be anything, at any point in any episode, there's nothing to stop it. And it's just amazing, astonishing television, and this is the absolute best example of that. It is timey-wimey-lee, because you do have the time corridors, and there's a very good reason for it. The robots are trying to find a Madame de Pompadour, who's the same age as the spaceship is, at the point they're trying to find her. What an absolutely astonishing idea to throw into your script, mm-hmm. and you talk, you glossed over it. Human eyes in alien technology—an absolute nonsense, just as nonsensical as most of Stephen Moffat's other ideas, but just like Douglas Adams' ideas, nonsense, and yet it makes perfect sense. It's funny you get those echoes in
2: um, Stephen Moffat. You saying about that—it's just made me think of *The Empty Child*. It's that same thing of the alien technology trying to make sense of the human body. And in yeah. the same way the robots are trying to make sense of the human body to use them to repair the ship. Um
0: there's no way in Empty Child that those uh what do they call them? Nanobites or yeah, nanobots. whatever they call yeah. them. There's no way they would ever look at an injured child with a gas mask on his face and assume that was how a person was supposed to be. No way on earth. And yet <laughs> By the time you get to the end of the second episode, Stephen Moffat has absolutely persuaded you of that logic. It's brilliant storytelling. It
2: is. It's interesting. as I say, you get these echoes. You've got the echo between those stories, and then you think about Stephen Moffat doing the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, doing Narnia, and you think, "Well, no, he's already done it. He's he's done it in the Girl in the Fireplace, the whole time travel thing, and the whole yeah. the whole idea of time moving differently in in one dimension to the other." Um. So he kind of used that idea to its full potential there already before he did the Doctor, the Widow, the Wardrobe, and we all know how that turned out.
0: Well, he uh, he often reuses ideas, or I wouldn't say. Well, people accusing this of just stealing from himself. I don't think he steals from himself. I think he has a themes and b. Sometimes he will develop things, so sometimes he will use an idea that seems like the same idea, but actually it's just a similar idea, or an idea that mm. has been developed further. Apart from where,
1: apart from the word "dance," which gets used too much in his episodes, um, euphemism for "shag," basically, isn't it? So, I mean, what would well, have been quite nice? Thanks
0: for being quite so coarse about explaining it, Lenny.
1: Well, I think you said it early, didn't you? Oh no, shag is yeah. a dance. <laughs> um, no, no, but it's true. That's what it's there you know that's what he means. Uh, yes. But when when they have that lovely little chat about dancing, I mean, you don't need to make it about that. You could say love. You could just replace the word with love, and it would be much more believable. Whereas it sounds like a you know a quick one behind the bike shed, <laughs> and he comes out and he's just inventing the banana daiquiri as a as a post-coital cigarette.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How do you carry on from that? <laughs> oh
1: dear. We right.
2: move on, I think. We do. But um, yeah. it is just a lovely, uh, as you say, a melting pot of brilliant, brilliant ideas. Beautifully written. It's
0: funny. It's moving. Um, yeah. And it's beautifully yeah, it's just... acted. Mm. There's only about four people in it, but they all do an astonishing job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't occur to you, does it? No. I mean, well, I mean, I'm not including uh, Rose and Mickey, but yeah, you know, apart from Rose and Mickey, really, it's Madame de Pompadour, her husband, who has about six lines, and most of them are in that last scene. Ah, uh, that's about it, really. Mm. Oh, but well, anyway, Arthur the horse uh,
1: should have been uh, the new Tardis uh, companion. Should have left Mickey behind. Maybe that would have been quite interesting. Arthur the Horse. (laughs) There's two horses in Doctor Who with names. I wonder if they should meet in some story or no. Can you write
0: that, please, JR? Me? Yeah, you. (laughs) The story is Arthur and Susan. All right. (laughs) Um, Summing up the series, Richard Judge said... Overall, one of the best seasons of all time, and one of the most important, too, as it successfully negotiated the difficult second-album syndrome. Just one more point. Having just listed those stories, it strikes me that the production team went out to scare the kids big time that year. Monsters in the kids' bedroom, fireplace and fear her, Monsters eating kids at school. People getting chopped up in the Cyberman story and Girl in the Fireplace. Werewolves and devils. Just brilliant. Whereas John Featonby says, it's a cracking series anyway, this one. So much darkness, wit and intelligence for a Saturday tea time. And that's the last from our guests. I spoke about what I thought of the series as a whole last week. Uh, Lee, series two. How do you think it fits in with the Russell T Davis era? Uh, one of the best? It is one of the best.
1: Um, Donna's... Season was another best, um Martha's wasn't so good. And the one before that was the trial, wasn't it? It was this is this is the one that um, RTD wanted to make, I think. It's the one that he wanted to stamp his kind of this is the kind of doctor who I want to really do because you've got the eccentric doctor, not the kind of man down pub thing, you've got the eccentric doctor back, uh, the geeky, nerdy guy running around acting bizarre. Um, with a great actor in it and an interesting kind of love relationship you know it's got heartache and emotion it's fun, it's bold, it's brilliant and we were were very lucky at the time having RTD telling us through Doctor Who magazine and other things at how happy he was doing it and how we must not worry as fans that it's in good hands and you're going to enjoy it it's going to be fantastic and he wasn't wrong the stuff that was coming out was great that whole season at the time of watching it, holds so many good, fun memories for me because Doctor Who was becoming incredibly popular again and everybody was happy to walk around with Doctor Who magazine out of the paper bag now. Um, (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, And there were people that I worked with that would never have touched it with a barge pole. In fact, I'll give you a, a quick insight I work in a library and all the Doctor Who books were taken off by a particular member of staff and I said don't do that because you know there are fat people that like it no 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 it's out it's dead we're not doing it so she got rid of all these virgin books and I thought oh my, so they've all gone you know they've all, they've all been moved on pulped whatever they are old and then suddenly it came back and it was super popular and that person came back and apologised and said I oh, should have kept those and I? I went yes you should have done <laughs> because everybody just started being a Doctor Who fan that year and it just felt great it was great times so I think the whole series for me personally uh, even though it's got its ups and downs it's a mixed bag it just holds such great memories so I'll always be fond of it even Rise of the Cybermen uh, (laughs) and the Idiots Lantern and Fear Her as well I've got a bit of love for all of it to be honest
0: Simon, have you anything else you want to say about series two? No, i uh... I'm.
2: I'm. First of all, I'm glad that somebody else used the second album al- analogy, or else I'll be <laughs> accused of um, doing more musical <laughs> analogies. Analogies, think, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's absolutely right. But <clears throat> um, it was riding the crest of a wave, and I think Lee's absolutely right that RTD was able to do with the series what he wanted to do. And when you were going, you know, you were giving a rundown of all the different sort of themes in all those stories. It was so diverse mm. and very, very just, just, just mad. And. Um, lovely accent- Sadly, eccentric. I don't
0: think we get that the following series.
2: We don't know. No, It was, it was very eccentric and David Tennant was having the, the time of his life. We can be very fickle, can't we? Um, and then we can look on back on it and be quite cynical about it. But think about it at the time. I mean, it was just, just historic television, really. I don't think there's any other series like it. Um, well, we know there isn't because we're all fans of it, but. I don't know. It was ju- it was just really great and as you say the next series on yeah wait wait just
0: wait for that one. <laughs> uh. So next week well in a fortnight hence is our actual second birthday 100th episode. Wow. Where we'll be uh, getting together in person and uh doing short topics and questions from our listeners. Mm. Uh but next week something well, so hope incredibly special <laughs> by way of a pre-birthday strike. Uh, not going to say what it is, though, but we've already recorded it. Uh, I think, I hope the listeners will enjoy it. I think so. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Do you mean there's only one I'm sorry, listener? Yeah, you should, yeah <laughs> I'm sure he will. I'm sure it will. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, in the meantime, though, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. talk yeah. oh dear I uh, know I refuse <laughs> <laughs>